Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puneet. My co-host, David, is joining me today. How's it going, David? What's new in your world? It's doing good. We just released our back to school episode and now I'm back in school. <laughs> How fortuitous. <laughs> just had my first week of classes, figuring out everything and getting everything ready to graduate here in December. So it's pretty hectic because still so much to be decided, but it's going well. What about you? Sixth year is your best year, right, David? <laughs> is it my sixth? I don't know what year it is anymore. It's been too long. I know I make fun of you for that. So I'm pretty sure it's your sixth year. I'm, I'm not counting or anything. Yeah. But yeah, this past weekend has been pretty eventful. I moved in my little brother into Duke. He's a first year now and it feels like time has really flown by since he's like six and a half years younger than me. But yeah, that whole process, it was actually pretty smooth. And while they were getting their like keys or whatever, they asked the family to like just stay outside so it's not too crowded in there. And we saw some pickleball playing. Apparently at Duke, they have like tennis courts and then they have like specific pickleball courts. So I thought that was interesting. It's a super fun game and it actually ties well into our episode. Do you want to get into that? Oh, yes. Did you know that pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the United (laughs) States? Well, we learned that today. We met with the founder of a 3D printing company called Azul 3D, and it was really interesting. They do a new type of 3D printing, which we'll get more into, but basically it has the promise of being extremely quick and also unlocking a new set of polymers known as thermosets, which have previously been unable to be 3D printed. So very, very interesting. I really enjoyed the parts where he gets really in depth in the end about actually how he started the business and his advice. And he was very candid about how he reached out to companies and how he kind of interacted with them, which I thought was very interesting, especially valuable if I was to ever start a company or even with the podcast, how we could reach out to potential partners. What were your favorite parts? I mean, that was my favorite part too. And just kind of like the cold LinkedIn message that he sent. We got into like what he actually said, how he developed these relationships with various customers, right? It it kind of varies from network events to emails to cold LinkedIn messages. So that was my favorite part too. I know I could take a lot from that in terms of incorporating it into this podcast, but I think it's also helpful for any listener, right? Who's trying to market themselves too. You need sometimes to send that cold email, cold LinkedIn message to develop that relationship that can then turn into an internship, for example, or from the business standpoint, it goes a long way. You really need to just like buckle down and do it yourself for getting those first customers. So that was my favorite part of the episode, but then also just kind of learning about how he turned his research into this business opportunity, whereas kind of the more traditional paths are submitting a paper, right? And then seeing the response. Instead, he kind of took some like accidental discovery where, you know, he was aiming to develop the smallest 3D printer and instead he developed the fastest 3D printer. So that was a fascinating story that I definitely recommend that our listeners stick around for. That happens about midway through the episode. What do you think our listeners should look forward to? He talks a lot about the future, and I know that we harp on it a lot, but just data, data science, machine learning are all important, and they're becoming even more important. And big companies like Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, all these things have harped on it, and now we're starting to see it seep in. And so he's describing how we can use it in this specific application, but moreover, how the 
companies are looking at data in a different light now and how we're approaching it. Oh, for sure. I think it's like, that's the biggest piece of advice that I thought was the most important for the next generation of material science, like students is, you know, we've mentioned it time and time again before is the importance of ML and AI in MSc, but we never really got into what should you do specifically to set yourself up to be like that prime candidate down the line, right? And really set yourself up with the skill set necessary to become that desirable option. And so James really gets into that in a lot of detail about what can you do to bridge that gap between data science and material science. So yeah, that's the episode. So do you have anything to add before we get into it? Yeah, just the final point there is that I really appreciated, even though we talk about it a lot, I think that there are two different sides of the coin. Even Pranitha and myself, like I'm much more interested in doing the data science and doing coding and understanding uh, data analytics and Puneeth isn't, but I think it's important that he understands what's out there and what it does and how you can apply it. And for everything, he says that machine learning will lead, but you will have to know the under, the baseline understanding. And it's easier to teach material science than learn coding as a side project than no coding and then try to learn MSE. And so just being aware of it and how we can apply it and then overall uses, I think, doesn't mean you have to get into it, but will help you out in the long run just to understand the limitations and also the benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. Super valuable episode, very insightful. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. James Hedrick, co-founder and chief product officer at Azul 3D, a 3D printing startup based in Chicago, Illinois. James started his first company at the age of 16, and which he used the profits to pay for his college tuition at MIT, where he was also an NCAA student athlete. He then went on to receive his PhD in chemical and biological engineering at Northwestern University. To top it all off, he was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 Class of 2020. Thank you for joining us today, James. We're very excited to have you on our show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this. We are too. So David just said a couple of things in that introduction that we wanted to unpack a little bit more. You started a company at the age of 16. What was that company and how did it you know, generate enough profits to pay for your tuition? Yeah, at 16, I was doing this program called Destination Imagination, which is this creative problem solving program. I definitely recommend anyone in high school to take a look at. But the big thing at the international tournament is doing pin trading because you have so many people that don't have languages or different languages. And there's this barrier that they design their own custom pins, start trading it. The company I developed was called Fantastic Pens, and it was originally developed our own lapel pens that we started working with a manufacturer in China to directly make them, do it cheaper so we could afford it. And then the pens started being good enough that everyone else started asking, where are you getting them? Where are you designing them? And started spiraling from there of us starting designing most of the teams and then eventually most of the state pens in the U.S. that were going to this tournament. And we found that, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of pens every year that we're able to do it. It worked out perfectly or going in undergrad because you could do homework all day. And then at two in the morning, you can uh, talk with the factories over in China, coordinate everything right before uh, getting up and ready for the next day. That's crazy. I think that a lot of people have trouble talking to China now <laughs> when we have all these technologies and you did it at 16. I, I think a lot of us like try to do community service or other smaller projects were in high school. And we either lack the drive or the know-how to really jump upon a bigger project such as starting a company. How did you overcome maybe some of your 
developmental where you just haven't had the opportunity to learn yet? And how did you overcome that to make the product finally? Yeah, for the case of Pentastic Pens back then, it was taking it one step at a time. So, you know, the very first thing was just, it originally started with, we got a box from the company directly shipped to us rather than the additional groups who were doing it because there was a rush order. And we we're like, oh, wow, we found what factory is making this. Can we look them up and uh, reach, and they had an email address, reach out and start. And then from there, it just kept building one step at a time. It wasn't doing it all at once. To me, it wasn't originally about being a, doing a startup. It just started to lend itself to it. And if I had started it all at once with that big idea in mind, I don't think I would have got it because at 16, you're right. That's a lot to take over all at once. <laughs> Absolutely. So after that, did you kind of fall in love with that like entrepreneurial path? Did you know that that's what you wanted to do like out of college or were you still weighing all your options when you entered college? Definitely still weighing all my options. Like the whole, I grew up in the Bay Area, so startup culture was big. So it was something that I knew was always an option, thankfully. But what I would say is even graduating MIT, I decided I didn't know what I wanted to do. So what's the best thing to do? Put pause on figuring out and just go to grad school and continue that. I like that. And so what happened to Fantastic Pens in the end? Eventually, my brother started taking it over for a while. And then it kind of started to die off really when the pandemic hit. But it was something that was always going to be what people call a lifestyle company versus something that could be a venture back. Mm -hmm. There's some awesome lifestyle companies out there like Patagonia, right? They're a huge company. They, they do amazing things, but they're ones that are designed to hit a level and do that. Like it's great for making huge things, but it's also at the same time, not something that, you know, you're not going to do VC backing, do the traditional, what people call startups over time. And that's what that turned into is it, it hit a plateau and hit what it was going to be. I know for myself, I had a community service project from like eighth grade to 12th grade. And when you undergo such a large project that you spend a lot of time on, how did you go about saying, okay, like no more sunk costs? Like it was great. I learned a lot, but it's time for me to move on. How did you make that demarcation? To me, it was really when I was starting grad school. One of the things when you do a PhD is no PhD is equal. At the end of the day, it's what you put in is what you get out of it. And that's when I had that decision in that moment for me personally was, all right, if I'm going to do a PhD, if I'm putting pause on getting, you know, real pay and do it, I'm, I'm going to put everything into it. I want to do the, you know, the seven days a week working, 2 a.m. lab nights, all of that. And you can't do that and have a side hustle going on effectively. So can you then walk us through what your PhD like program and your research was all about and how that led to kind of the, the founding of Azul 3D? Happy to. So I was a chemical engineer. I was actually in a chemistry lab doing material science research. So I was all over the place because that's something that was found if you look at throughout my career, even in undergrad, I like jumping around and seeing what kind of, I had a lot of interests effectively. And I think this is one of the hardest things for anyone is how do you narrow in your interests? So my PhD all revolved around a technique called lithography. Lithography on the simplistic form is if you've ever taken a photograph, you've done lithography. You've made a pattern, you've made an image. Now, the difference was I was originally starting this on the nanoscale where we're talking about dots the size of a one thousandth of a hair. And originally, we were going to pattern proteins on the surface to do stem cell differentiation. That quickly jumped me to a new project that did pattern nanoparticles to do what's called heterogeneous catalysis, where you're using the particle to be a catalyst to do different chemical reactions. And eventually, I kept moving this architecture further to nano 3D printing. And that's really where my PhD ended. The second half was into nano that we accidentally messed up 
I like to say, and built the world's fastest 3D printer when we we're trying to build the world's smallest. <laughs> and my whole life changed from there. And so with your research and your knowledge, you did launch Azul 3D, which is the company that we will get more into today. But I know a lot of people who do PhDs never realize their interesting part of science into a company. How did you take your idea of taking the fastest 3D printing and then say, yes, this is something that could go farther? There's two halves of that, really. There's a lot of great research going on. The whole point of basic research is, or sorry, PhD research is to usually do basic research, fundamental science around it. And sometimes there's a applied part from being an engineer versus a traditional chemist. There was a lot more applied to it, but half of it comes down to timing. It it perfectly timed out that what we were doing actually solved the problem and the market really cared about. The second half of it came to when we realized what we had there, there's a couple options to do with your, your work. You just publish it, see what industry thinks of it. You can go talk to the universe and have them start looking for people to try to license it out. But that doesn't always work out. If you really want to see something that you invented in a lab translate over, you have to decide to do it yourself. And that was one of the big decision points in my PhD was, is this something that I believe in enough that I would sidestep anything I was thinking of a career before and fully jump into this? So then can we walk back to like that accidental discovery, right? Like you're trying to build the smallest 3D printer and you build the fastest, right? What was that process like? How did that discovery come about? And then how did you tie it, like David was talking about, to like the applications, right? Or think of that as like the next possible pathway when there are a bunch of options and there's also, you know, a bunch of 3D printing companies out there as well. So going back to those nano days, we had this array of these basically nano pillars that would move back and forth and shine light. The big issue that we kept facing is that every time... And we work in 3D printing of liquid resins where you have a liquid that you shine light, turns it into a solid. When it would turn into a solid, it would cure right where the light was shining from, which was this nano pillar. It would basically rip off the pillar because it would stick to it. And that was the issue we kept finding. So what we solved was we developed a, a layer that would coat these pillars that would actually stop any adhesion from occurring. And so you could print and stop and it had to have incredibly low adhesion forces for that size. And what we had this aha moment was, okay, what if you ripped out the pillars, kept effectively that same interface, but used a normal projector, like everyone else in the macro world does, could you print the same, but now not stick and be a continuous printer? And the real connection point was that a comboed with a couple of the 3D printing companies that had come out at the time had just become this unicorn status. It was the big thing. It was super, you know, exciting. And it really captivated my like attention and inspired me of, wow, look at how the industry is changing. But there's this one critical flaw that they've pointed out to the, in the industry already, thankfully, for us to see, which was, okay, we can print incredibly fast with these new printers. We had a basic issue, which was these reactions are exothermic in nature. So they release heat. If you print 100 times faster than everyone else has gone before, you generate now 100 times the heat. You can actually have, we've seen 150 degrees Celsius temperature swing in a matter of 10 minutes. That is going from you know room temperature to a cake coming out of the oven. That is not good for plastic parts. And the fundamental science that was running these other printers could not cool the system. There was a key just barrier there that we realized our printer could do. And that was where we're like, okay, we hit this baseline with these other printers that are coming out that are changing the world. But we see the three to five year out from them 
is going to hit this wall that doesn't get them to the dream that they're they're pitching. Can we do that? That was really the genesis of everything for us. So could you explain in more detail how your technology adverts or do you tackle the problem and are able to solve it? Or is this new light producing way able to not produce as much heat? So we tackle the problem. So what we use is the first liquid-liquid interface. So everyone else has a solid interface that the resin sits on top of that the light underneath cures from. Ours is a layer of fluorinated oil. And this fluorinated oil isn't stationary, but rather it flows in and out in this. And I'll get a little technical for some people, but if anyone's had a Chemi 101 or a Mechie fluid, it's a laminar flow profile going across. And as it comes in, the oil comes in cold and acts as a heat sink. So just think about the oil in your car. It's cooling the part in the same way. So it absorbs the heat out for the first time. At the same time, the motion of the oil is what makes everything exciting on the material side. It does the same thing as if you ever hydroplaned, where your tire stops sticking to the road. It's called a slip boundary. It's the non-standard condition for a pipe flow. The other example I like to give for people is if you ever seen the magician trick where you have the tablecloth and they pull it. And now that it moves, the same thing. That oil is like the tablecloth going across. And now the part is completely unaffected by that interface and can continuously pull up. So are there certain materials that this process is more aligned with and can interface with? Or what kind of applications does this allow for and what materials are involved in this 3D printing process? So what it does actually is it actually changes how the material is cured altogether. And so you can take the same formulation and get better properties. So if you think about traditional printers, they're called what is layer by layer printing. So you would shine light, print a layer break it off from the heat of the interface, come back down one layer higher, shine light again, and do that thousands of times. Well, you're laminating sheets of plastic on top of each other. This is not a samurai sword where you, you, know, you bend it over, over and over again, and you make something stronger like in metal, but rather you know, you're laminating plastic and you're making these defects between the layers. So if you've ever had a 3D printed part and you print it super tall, you'll find that if you try to bend it this way, it just snaps across that Z axis. For us instead, we never turn the light off now. And we never stop the Z-arm from pulling. And so it just continuously prints up. So rather than curing one layer at a time, it's the steady state of this flowing resin coming up to make a single continuous piece. And so now that changes it from being something that was great for prototyping to something that now is the equivalent of any thermoset resin in industrial use in traditional manufacturing. It sounds like you have a great competitive advantage where you're able to print much faster Going to these other technologies, which I think a lot more people have experience with, like with your tabletop printer, how will they overcome this heating issue? Or is it just simply that it will most likely end up being just a lot of these cheaper printers will never go that fast? They just never go that fast. So if you don't go fast enough, it just dissipates the ambient temperature, it gets sucked into the resin. It doesn't matter until you're going fast. So you mentioned like the thermoset resins, and I I guess I'm just trying to figure out, can you dive into from the industrial side, like what this allows for, like maybe kind of the applications you're targeting and things of that nature? Yeah. So the first thing I want to take a step back and talk about thermoset versus thermoplastic, because I have a feeling that's something that's new for the audience. So thermoplastic resins are resin or plastics that are the ones you traditionally think of. They're ones that you heat up and they melt and you can push into a mold and then cure the final parts. What most plastic parts you find are today that are, you know, have a 3D shape that are injection molded. Thermal sets are ones that start as a liquid and then you cross-link them in to make a solid part. 
the problem with those is that you never are able to, you know, remelt it, recycle it. But on the other hand, you get these distinct advantages. You can have significantly better creep properties. So how much does it bend with a force under it over time and warp? You can also get some better compression set. And so what a compression set is, is think about a gasket. A gasket makes a seal between two parts. Well, over time, that is going to keep pushing it smaller and smaller because it's got pressure on each side, it's got elevated temperature. Well, the compression set is what percentage does it come back to? So a traditional gasket might be at 30 or 40%, which is significant loss. A thermoset based one would have two to 4%. So now you have a significantly better seal over time that you couldn't traditionally make well. But thermosets are traditionally really hard to work with until you use them in a 3D printer. And so that's why you don't see them as much. They're more expensive to do it. They don't have quite the variety. And so now we're able to leverage this whole new family of materials that have different advantages. And then you combine those advantages with geometries that you couldn't do by other systems. And that allows us to go to, we have three main categories we're going after today, which is consumer goods. You might've seen, and we can talk about Wilson Sporting Goods is using us for pickable paddles. Uh, industrial goods, one of our flagship customers there is DuPont. We're also working with the DOD to make custom cast masks. And then we're also in automotive right now, where we're doing some long-term studies with some OEMs to be able to prove out this material for in-car applications. And so for consumer goods, I have some experience in that sector. And you're right that thermoplastics are like heavily used in like straws, spoons, everything that we use is basically a thermoplastic. And so when we talk about costs, like a straw costs like 0.0001 cents. When we talk about injection molding, which is like this very mature technology, then we compare it to now you can make a better straw or maybe more durable or et cetera. How does the actual processing costs compare? I'm sure it's going to be more expensive, but could you give us like right now and then maybe in 10 years, the comparison? Yeah. So when you start thinking about these materials, the idea of injection molding, you have a tooling cost that's very expensive. You know, you're talking about $100,000 on average, and then you have a very cheap material that's a couple dollars a pound. And so now when you flip to 3D printing, it's completely flipped. You don't have any tooling cost. The printer is cheaper than a traditional full injection molding machine. So the machine caught hardware that you can ignore for now. And then on the other side, though, maybe you are in the tens of dollars, the high tens of dollars per pound on the material. So going for, you have an order of magnitude jump on that material, which means now you're going to have that crossover, that $100,000 versus that material cost. Going on. That is if you're only looking at the exact same part. The goal of 3D printing and the goal of Azul right now is not about taking over injection molding. We have a motto called transforming manufacturing. The idea is that every product line that you go and work with us on, you develop it in such a way that you can never do it by traditional manufacturing. You never want to go back. The advantages that you're bringing into it are still worthwhile. So you have more added value than added cost. And the final thing I would mention with that is that we're about moving. 3D printing is 0.1% of manufacturing today. Over the next couple of years, how do we get from 0.1% to 1%? And that's where we want as a company personally be able to push that, that over to and so if you're not trying to tackle what's already well done with like these really cheap, like a straw is a straw, you're not going to change much. What applications are you looking for in consumer goods, for example, if we're not talking about straws and forks, et cetera? One example is sports equipment. I'll use the one that we're, we're most publicly out there right now is with pickleball paddles. So pickleball, fastest growing sport out there right now. And 
these paddles, you know, they range on the cheap end from wood ones you can get for $10, but a carbon fiber one starts at 15, goes up to 300. So these are not the same price range as a 10 straw, but it's all about performance now. With any piece of sports equipment, can you make something that performs better? And so what we found is that we took something that was traditionally a composite, you know, carbon fiber, polypropylene, and also wood was the three components they used to make five different components, uh, five parts that they were gluing together. And now 3D printing that all as a single piece. We find that it plays better, but in addition, it changes the sound, which for them is a huge performance thing that they, they cut the volume significantly down, which is a huge thing. Cause if you ever look up the call lawsuits, you'll see it was on the New York times home uh, front page about a month ago that this is a, a critical issue that they're now able to solve and change how the field's growth can happen. So how did you find that application in the first place? Like pickleball, well, I didn't know is you know, one of the fastest growing <laughs> sports, but um, how did you uncover that application? And then also just in general, like how do you tie this process, right? It seems like the idea is finding maybe like complex processes to like apply this 3D printing process, not trying to take over injection molding, but instead finding another niche. So how did that work for in this specific application with the pickleball paddles? So for us, it wasn't us discovering Wilson Sporting Goods knew pickleball can be, you know, innovated through 3D printing, through new geometry. So they had a geometry in mind that would change how pickleball could play, but they couldn't do it by any other method. So when we were going out, we reached out to Wilson knowing that, you know, sports is high performance, makes a ton of sense to be able to do these geometries that can get you better, you know, a 1% increase in Hitting power and then can be a game changer. That area we thought would be a good company. So we, you know, and how I got, they, they were one of the first companies I reached out to. It was a cold LinkedIn message. Wow. And that is what turned into this gigantic project and a huge collaboration between us. But at the end of the day, it is customers that we're working with already know what they want to innovate. They just don't have a tool to do it. So I always go, you know, what are the things you've dreamed about over the past decade? And can we see if the economics finally make sense or the material properties hit? So for Pickleball, there was not a single paddle that was ever that they tested and printed that held up through a full game. They would all just shatter because of that, what I was talking about, that layer by layer, that, that weakness, because we print these out vertically. One hit, this thing explodes effectively. And so having better materials opened up something brand new for them. Interesting. So this is maybe more of a selfish question from just like the business standpoint, marketing standpoint, but I'm just curious, like, what did you say in that cold LinkedIn message that facilitated this conversation, right? Where you maybe provide enough value, but also you're trying to really learn, like, how can this collaboration become fruitful for both sides? I'll have to look it back up, but I remember it was something along the lines of for them, they had shown that they had a 3D printing innovation center. And I found the person that did the YouTube video, you know, two minute promo and reached out saying, Hey, we have this new 3d printing technology. We are down as Wilson. Another great thing is there, they're in Chicago as well. So I'm down the street. I know you're doing these things. Can we just have a five minute call? And believe it or not, he, uh, I put my cell phone number in there and he gave me that five minute call. And that five minute call ended up turning a week later to a pitch in front of 20 people from their team that I had 30 minutes that turned to three hours because we got so entrenched in the tech so quickly that it, <laughs> it is one of those perfect scenarios that happen. It doesn't always happen that easily, but it sometimes it is a little bit of dumb luck mixed with a lot of grit of reaching out to finally find that one group that, that is going to be the first one for you. Because 
at the time we weren't even publicly out there with a website. We had a homepage that said coming soon. There was nothing <laughs> on the tech and our team size was four people. So wow. it was, uh, you, you have to, when you're first starting out, find that group, like you have to find that first adopter that is willing to take a chance on it once they, you know, and can understand the vision of what you're doing and it lines up with what they want. So over the past couple of minutes through your answers, you've talked about a bunch of different materials like thermosets and how we can leverage these new branch materials. And then you also just talked about how now you can go to Wilson and say, what performance are you looking for? And so all this kind of leads back to the material development process. And we often hear a limiting factor of 3D printing is that only certain materials can be processed for more conventional 3D printers. How do you approach developing new materials for 3D printing with this new novel branch and technique of printing? Yeah, so for us, we now have 450 materials back of house to start with. We've spent uh, the first you know, four years of the company just going, okay, there, there's four main categories of material you, you have before we get to specialties, which whole nother conversation to have, but you have <laughs> elastomers, you know, think about your, your shoes, you have flexible materials, think about like living hinges to durable, that's where these paddles live in, and then really strong, rigid that don't have high elongation. So you have these groups here that we started building out as many points across it, because our goal was, we know we can make materials that are truly continuous. We can't do thermoplastics, but we can do thermosets at this point. Can we make the uh, industrial library here that are starting points? Because the other thing that we want to do is mimic injection molding. Injection molding, you go to someone and say, I want to make something out of ABS. Well, they're like, here's 50 different grades of ABS. We have glass filled, we have different purity, all this sort of things. Not here's one liter of our tough durable, go take it, pour it in, use it. This is all you get. And we find that by having that approach and by making this huge data set that each customer can come in, take it, we can fine tune in quickly to exactly what they need. You know, most of these projects we're going after are ones that other 3D printers have failed at. And so the off-the-shelf already doesn't. Interesting. So, for example, I am doing a research project where I had to source some NBR, natural butadiene rubber. And there's like 40 options and I have no idea what all these different ones, they look exactly the same to me. How is Azul approaching that problem to kind of hone it in? And then with the entire like data and data science becoming more popular, how do you see this field moving forward, like with ML and AI potentially? Yeah. So how we work to hone it in is, is in addition to the 40 different variations, what a lot of our competitors do is then say, okay, on top of that, I can also synthesize 40 different other variations. And to us, all of our chemistry is done. We, we view ourselves as formulators not as true chemists. And in that sense, what we're doing is taking things from other industries and leveraging it in. And I think this is one of the big, you know, Budai wrote, there's a lot of good ones, but like our approach is, let's look at what has been the best formulations out there in the adhesives, all things, nail polish, coatings, the UV curable society, like field as a whole, take these industrially proven components that, you know, what are the best sellers? Why are they the best sellers? And then can we start incorporating those into a formulation that would work for 3D printing because the material properties translate over. The other thing that translates over is cost. Sorry, what was the second half of your question? You are focusing on like getting a data set so that you can help customers in the future. And I think that overall, as a whole, just data is becoming more valuable. And I think material science is starting to pick up on that. So how do you see the field moving forward in the future if now we're turning to formulators and honing each application, especially with no tooling cost? 
Yeah, I love this question because AI machine learning is the future for materials. There's always going to be a combination of can it help you lead the way, but won't get to the final, at least in the short term. It's not far enough along. But what we're finding is that can you also be using it throughout the whole process? Can you have data that goes from what, what's in the material formulation? What are the characteristics coming from each batch to batch variation of the mixing to what's getting pr the print conditions on the printer? and all of our testing data off the printer. Can we have one single data set that takes all of this together and starts combining in? Because there's a whole second half of this, which is what I was talking, you know, you're printing layer by layer, so you print continuous, we get different material properties, which is exciting and potentially frustrating depending on how you view it. And so having that whole system, I, I really think that is where the future is. Some of the best people that we have working with us is people that have some comp side background that but are truly more of a chemist or vice versa so that you can bridge this because it's a really hard problem to attack if you don't understand the, the fundamentals of the chemistry. That leads perfectly to my next question because I'm just wondering, right? Like we hear, we've heard it before that machine learning, AI, data science as a whole will play a pivotal role in the future of this field of material science. But what can the next generation of material science and engineering students do now to best set themselves up to be like the best people that you just mentioned, right? That have this combination of both backgrounds, but if they start out with the MSc background, what can they do in the next two, three years to really set themselves up to be like a great candidate for these types of jobs? I would say the best thing you do is, you know, if you, you've got that background of materials, Start getting, if you're still an undergrad, get that minor or even dual major with ComSci. Those are like the unicorns, 3D printing and in the materials world right now, because it's there's so few people that can really bridge that gap. It is better in my mind if you start as the materials person and then learn the programming rather than vice versa, because having those fundamental concepts there, it's not just taking an equation and putting it together and see where the data hits. You have to bridge what you think that should be going on with the structure that we're just, we're so far away from having that level of AI today. At. I think one question that I personally have, and since you're passionate about it, someone that might be really good, but I am someone who's interested in computer science and I've tried to hone my skills and apply it to my internships. But one thing, especially with these mechanical and like manufacturing in general, is that there's a lot of data that you can get the data collection side is very advanced with PLCs and all these microsensors, but the data that you get is very confusing sometimes in a lot. What's your company's philosophy on trying to hone down to the major parts? Because I can collect 10,000 variables, but then trying to apply it into any sort of model to give me any sort of analysis becomes increasingly hard, especially when you don't have maybe the expertise of like statistical analysis as a traditional computer science machine learning expert would. It's kind of what you just meant. Like, can you do statistical analysis to it? Can you do like ways of filtering the data to make it easier to understand and go on? That, that's a big thing is that we try to collect as much data as possible, even though I know what we use today might be a tenth of what we actually collect. And over time, you know, we're, we're, the plan is to get more and more. So, so there's two, one, can you filter out? Two, can you look at your background? What are the things you think are the most important? What are the critical, and some of that you can do through studies, right? You can do a design experiments to simplify, okay, these are the things that are most critical. Let's just take that data to do the analysis with first, knowing that all these things are secondary. So they will have an effect, but 
if they're smaller than the other one, you can still get that trend that you're going after that's most important first and then build it up. So last question about the machine learning and, and AI, but I just find it like very fascinating. But you keep talking about bridging the gap, right, from material science and computer science. What does that actually mean in, in your context at Azul 3D to the extent that you're willing to talk about it? Um, I'm just curious about like, what is it that someone brings to the table when they have that mix of both backgrounds that provide that is very valuable to your company? And I'll keep it a more high level and not get into the nitty gritty, but it's really about, okay, if we look at trends with, let's, let's take the formulation of chemistry, because that's a lot of what we're talking about. Now, if you mix, let's call it five component system, but A and B, we're just changing the ratio. And as we go from all A percentage to all B percentage into it, it doesn't necessarily look linear. And so that's one of the things is that as you go, you can see some trends going in different components. And part of the reason why it doesn't is that how the ratio of A and B now affects with C can start convoluting it. So if you do a formulation with just two components of A and B, okay, we have a nice easy trend and we all can take it over. But now when you add C, maybe C has, you know, a polarity difference that likes A better than B, or it's a sterics that comes in that, you know, really starts to make different blocks and sections. So you have hard and soft blocks in a way that you didn't think. Those are the type of things that ML and I don't see it, at least how we're implementing it ready yet. So that's where having that materials background allows you to think, okay, what is the more holistic things? Why are, you know, the trend goes this way, but then it changes this way. And now how do we take that to our advantage where the, the trend might be able to be identified quicker with machine learning with, and maybe it's not even machine learning, maybe it's just, you know, data analytics, you know, and visualization level at that stage of, you know, that, that makes it easier to when you plot everything out and see these trends, but that understanding of the why is where the chemistry background and the materials background comes. The trend itself, the data visualization analysis, machine learning, that shows you. And the why is what we really care about so that you can then define in what you need versus just saying, okay, we're going to pick the best of what we're made. That's awesome. But yeah, kind of taking it to another topic we've covered in this episode, injection molding. With 3D printing, it's difficult to match the speed, strength, and economy of scale of injection molding, right? And so I was just wondering if you can elaborate on the role material science plays in overcoming these three main challenges. Like one example is how is the material that's used, how does that affect print speed? You know? Perfect. Yeah. So the first thing is when you talk about material issues, reactivity is everything for print speed for us. And then the other thing that we've been opening out is viscosity. So if you develop a resin that has a high viscosity, the problem you have, you know, if you have something that's like molasses or honey, if you try to pull an object out, the resin has to fill back in before it can keep. Well, if it flows like water, it's going to go faster than if it flows like honey. And then when you talk about, you mentioned reactivity, well, if you have something that's completely unreactive, there's going to be, it needs more light to hit and you have a limit of how much light per area any printer has. So that each one has a max. So obviously you make something that's super reactive. Now you're going to print a lot faster. And those are the things that you have to consider when developing a material is how do you define those things? What's going to be your rate limiting? Well, if you define some, if you make a material that's super low viscosity, now your rate limiting might be reactivity and vice versa with going with it. The other critical component with it is that as you move to low viscosity, 
one of the things that we have developed is how do you make the network you truly want? Because having a super long chain, you're guaranteed to have what you want, the already built in. And that becomes a very difficult question that I'm really proud of the materials we've developed today, but that that as a material scientist, you'll really have to now think of, okay, you have these very specific operating parameters. I need this minimum reactivity. I need viscosity as we below this. And I have to have these material properties. How do I do it? And you have to fit into that box. I'm a little rusty on my polymeric knowledge, but are thermosets able to be crystalline? And if so, I know for like thermoplastics, especially you can control the temperature to determine the amount of crystallinity and that affects a lot of properties too. So now there's more layers to how you can affect your final product. Could you speak more on how you can control some more intrinsic material properties in this process? Thermosets and thermoplastics are similar in that way of having different levels of crystallinity. Part of that becomes what components you choose. Part of it's the limit. It is definitely... So one of the other key things that I was talking about here was the oil temperature cooling that system, right? So now you're right. As you start running this, our whole goal is to keep thermostatic control that printer. Because if you have a material that you know is cured at room temperature versus is cured at 100 C, you do start. You have the potential to get different properties. You have different networks forming, and part of that comes sometimes if you have uh, some of our formulations have up to 30 different components, in it, which is a lot of different things that each one has a different reactivity, and all of those reactivities don't have the same sensitivity to temperature. So some of them become more reactive as you heat up, some of them less, so you have the potential to change your network. That is not something you want to do. So now you need to be consistent with your setup here and then and have your parameters defined accordingly. This might be a silly question, but let's just say you have one material called material X. How many variables do you think that you can control with your system for any given run of material X? So when we talk about the machine learning, the real area where we really go into is controlling all of those variables because we can control the temperature. We control the light intensity, the Z speed, the oil coming in, the resin temperature, the, you know, the flow rate of the oil has new fun things. There ends up being a dozen key properties that come in. And what we found is because of our flowing oil, we have a couple more than everyone else that has a stair smear interface. So we have to do everything what everyone else does, plus a little bit. Yeah, it, it does become a really complex system where it easily, you find what are the, the biggest ones, right? Light intensity and Z speed are the easy ones that can do DOEs around in the early days of the study. So when we were first, you know, just in a lab, that, that's where we started. But then it keeps branching and building up to a point where you don't just have, you know, an intern running a million different samples. You, you really need to bring in that data as we've talked about. Do you think that complexity in defining those process parameters is the primary challenge from the technical standpoint to like scaling this company like five years down the line, 10 years down the line? Or is there some other challenge that we haven't yet covered that presents itself here? Believe it or not, the scaling of this comes from the business side more than the tech side. Mm. What we found on our level is that we've developed products that really have become game changing. Now, DuPont, we're in the electronics and industrial division of them doing something with some of the craziest regulations I've ever seen. <laughs> and we're hitting specifications that just haven't ever been seen before. So we know on the tech side, sometimes it takes a while to dial in everything, but once you dial in something, we you can do it really, really well. It's finding those applications so that they aren't you no know, one-offs, but really finding things that, you know, that yeah, it's that 1% of manufacturing. We have this multi-trillion dollar manufacturing market. Let's start with the first percent of it. 
can we redefine what is what is really needs to be changed? And that's always the hardest thing because go back to pickleball. I hadn't heard of pickleball when I first met the Wilson. <laughs> I was like, pickle what? I didn't know. <laughs> but you have to figure out how to get to the right customers that do know what they need that your tech can do. And that, that's always a hard thing because they haven't heard of you, especially as a startup. And you, while you probably have heard of them as household names, aren't fully familiar with their whole cat. You can't be an expert at everything. Mm-hmm. And that is where I think that combination of finding those groups and making those right connections defines how our growth comes from here. So I'm just curious, how did the relationship with DuPont then present itself? You know, you mentioned it with Wilson, right? They're down the street, cold LinkedIn message. Was it a similar story with DuPont? It was a yeah networking happy hour event where we met the venture group. I got three minutes with the person. They wouldn't, they took my card. They asked for a slide deck that they wanted to send to their technical teams and send out the deck. And about four months, you know, didn't hear anything. Four or five months later, I get an email from someone at DuPont saying, your deck just came across. It perfectly lines up with something that we were looking to build out a whole company to do around. Can we talk? And they had this project that they were, it was absolutely perfect for what we were doing, that they didn't have a way of solving it. But their proof of concept work knew, showed that if they could do this, it would re- like completely game change that field for them. Wow. That seems very fortuitous. You know, like months down the line, I feel like that slide deck would get lost. And that's kind of how it goes. Like now I I poked her every week. So (laughs) it it did like, and that's like, as a young entrepreneur, like it's going to be a lot of no's. It's going to be a lot of delayed gratification coming from it where you just have to message a ton of times and then keep falling back up. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I could say is just make it personalized. Like do as much research as you can with each group. I'm not a fan of just the the mass media blast to it. It's figure out what are the, like I knew DuPont has things that our technology should fit. How exactly it's going to fit wasn't sure. So that's where like when I found it there where it kept pushing to see what would shake loose. Same thing with Wilson. And that's that's where you really have to go as entrepreneurs find, you know, where's the companies, where's you think you have a real product market fit and then just be relentless till you get that to happen. So I'll be candid. Puneet and I, looking back, we stalked you on LinkedIn to see <laughs> that you've had a very diverse set of research experiences in college. And I think that you've shown a great story with Azul 3D, but going back to our audience and we're in college. And I think for me and for Puneet, we did a bunch of different research in different fields. And you did things from drug delivery to protein therapy to carbon nanotubes. What advice would you give for people who are trying to decide? And then could you give us insight into how you decided finally on the 3D printing and not to go into one of those other fields for your uh, either industry or if you went that route or your own company? I would say try it all is the best like, like that or I was I had a ton of interest and I you know I couldn't and even then I, I only did a you know five or six different variations which was a lot for undergrad but not enough to really get a taste of everything and what made me do what I did in the end like where I chose my PhD was not because of the project it was because of the people it was who was going to give me the ability to push the furthest and then when it came to 3D printing I will say there was a point in time with the nano printer where looking under a microscope after a five hour print just to see if it failed or not. I got these bags under my eyes still from <laughs> all my microscope hours. 
switching from that to something they could see with your own eyes was a game like it was just fun <laughs> at the end of the day and that, that, that's the thing is we we used to call it friday fun night when we were developing this company where we would print till two in the morning on every friday night and that's what we did in the lab because we got excited and passionate enough that we just wanted to keep pushing it so when you find a project like that and it times well where it's at a maturity to do something with it that's when i say you found something that you should go after if you feel like it's dragging just to do an eight-hour research day with it, and like there's always going to be dragging days. I will say research is not exciting 90% of the time. <laughs> but when when you hit that 10% of the time it's exciting and it's still dragging, you're not in the right field yet. Or you're not with the right team. And it, it's the mixture of both. So make sure when you're, you know, at this stage, find, especially if you're looking to do grad school, I say find the group first and then find pick the exact project second. Rather than, okay, this is my dream project. Now let's see if that group makes cultural sense for me. Maybe going back to your pen company and now these research groups, how did you decide and what would your advice be to say, okay, this isn't it. I want to try something new. Because I know I've had moments where like, oh, I'm not sure. I'll just stick it out for a little bit longer to see. And I can see where that could drag on forever. Look at where you think you're going with it. So like with the pen company, you know, I knew out of under if i kept doing it there was nothing new for me again we had a very specific market size that had a max cap that we were hitting so it wasn't like we personally wouldn't have more growth out so if you're sticking something a little bit further you know the best example i like to say is like my brother did investment banking the standard two years after graduating and then you go like a year end he hated it but he stuck it out that extra year because there was a lot of things that he learned from it that grew that helped him for the rest of his career and it's the same thing here is like if you're sticking with something, what are you growing from it that allows you to be better? Not just something that's on your resume, but truly are you getting, even though it might be hard, even though it might be tedious, it is making you better. And then on like on the complimentary side, you mentioned the importance of your group, right? And we know that you know having a good mentor in the form of a research professor or PhD student or, or whatever can go a long way towards your personal growth. So how did you go about that process of finding the right group for you? Yeah. So when I started my PhD, I had a rule. It was I wouldn't do a group larger than 20 people. And then I picked, that was my one rule, picked the, one of the largest groups in the country. So we were about <laughs> 80 people. <laughs> but the reason why at the time was that there was this postdoc in the lab that was running one of the subgroups. And he, the next year, became a professor at Boston University. So he was basically doing his first year of acting like a professor was his last year in that group. And so it was a group of 10, effectively. It was our own mini group where I found like, you know, I wasn't in the group yet. And we did a three-hour whiteboard session with half the team, just thinking about what projects we would do, how we would think. And I was like, this is exactly the type of, you know, they're willing to do that with me now when they don't need me on the team. And they didn't need a new student. They're happy to have more people growing. but like how is it going to be as it goes? And that that was, and it, it just got better over time. And it, it gave me an ability to build. And then, of course, my actual professor, Chad, is amazing, phenomenal. There's a reason why he has 70 professors, reason he has more patents than Thomas Edison. And so like, wow. as I got upper level into that group, it like I got that more, that continued building. So I had the postdoc that helped me build. And then I got to the level that the postdoc was where I got his mentorship and build up. And it's Actually, the one piece of advice I really need to say on this podcast for anyone is if you're starting a company, your co-founders are everything. Don't do a startup alone. If you're going to do a startup alone, you're going to have one of the most lonely journeys ever because there is a difference between a founder 
and every employee you have. And there's a difference between a founder and an investor. And you're going to have a lot of pressure on you because you know you need to make payroll every week. You need to keep things. And at the end of the day, a lot will fall on your shoulders. Even today, like I'm chief product owner. I'm not the CEO. We have brought in an amazing CEO, but it doesn't mean I don't have just as much pressure to make sure things go up because this is my startup just as much as it, like at the end of the day, founded. And so having that original group of founders for me has got us through a lot of hard times. Raise around April of 2020 and close it was not a fun thing to do, but it was something we got through together. And it's how I know like we'll continue to get through is that the team we've built and the team we started with. I love that. So what exactly did having multiple founders like enable? I, I know I, I understand from just like the responsibility side, being able to share that, especially when times are tough, that goes a long way. How are you able to kind of divvy up responsibilities as well when building out and, and scaling up Azul 3D? How it really divvied out for us was that for a startup, the lifeblood of the startup is getting money and the door. When you're starting, especially on a hard tech or materials, that's not going to come from customers at the start. It's going to come from investors. And you cannot at the same time slow down any of the tech development. So there's too much for any one person. So one of the great things is that we had, my PhD advisor had done startups before. So he was, while not coming full-time into the company, was able to start making connections with the right investors while we were starting to develop the technology. My other founder over time, Held down the fort on the tech to make sure as we had this team kept moving forward while I did the original pitches. And it was kind of going like you have to tag team different things because trying to do the pitch and keep moving the tech and finding customers all at the same time, you either find a couple really good, like that, that's where the founding team is about is having that diversity so that everyone can keep it pushing forward. And you don't have the thing that I've seen a lot of small startups that have one founder do, which is they make a great invention. They get a proof of concept and then the tech stops for six months while they do that first round of funding. Mm. Well, if you're in a competitive area where you've now sent that slide deck out, that six month lead time was your edge. You can't lose that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. You know, this was a really, really like insightful, insightful discussion for I think any material scientist or engineer. Um, so I was just wondering if you could wrap up this episode with your final piece of advice. You've already shared a ton, but your final piece of advice for like MSCs who are in school or, or just starting out in their careers, what would that final piece of advice be? It goes back to the original thing, try out new things and then follow what you're passionate about. That's the biggest thing is find what you're truly passionate about and go for that because that's what we want, make your job more fun and you'll be happier for it. And two, that's where I think people really start to change the field. I love that. Well, thank you so much, James. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I definitely learned a lot. Perfect. Thank you for having me. This was great. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below 
And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.